1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1166, the king of Leinster in Ireland is forced into exile and throws himself upon the mercy of Henry II to help regain his kingdom. His biggest bargaining tool in getting England's support is his teenage daughter, Eva, who has caught Henry's eye. But there's going to be a bloody battle for survival. Bronner had risen to her knees, blood dripping from her split lip onto her gown. Eva dragged her to her feet and pulled her into the hall, intent on her father's bidding. Quickly, she said, you can mourn later. At the hearth she met Enna's stunned blue gaze. A narrow cut striped his cheek and blood caked his fingernails. We were caught and slaughtered like rats, he said roughly, abandoned by our so-called allies. They will not stand against Rory O'Connor and Tiernan O'Rory, and now they're coming to Ferns. She swallowed. Where will we go? The Abbey, to the protection of the church. In this edition of Historical Fiction, history hits. Alice Roberts talks to Elizabeth Chadwick about her novel The Irish Princess, a saga of ambition and desire ranging from the royal halls of scheming kings, the wild green Irish countryside. This is Historical Fiction.
1: Elizabeth, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're here today to talk about your book, The Irish Princess. Now, it's set in mid-12th century Ireland and... I thought perhaps you could just paint a picture of what Ireland was like at this point and who's in charge. In Ireland, generally, there were a lot of
2: principalities, small kingdoms, which were perhaps no bigger than than large counties a lot of the time, if you were looking at it in English terms. Every area had its own king, if you like. There was an overall ruling high king the others perhaps gave allegiance to, but in general, everyone was fighting their own corner in small areas. And the heroine of my piece, Aoife, her father was king of a part of Southern Ireland called Leinster. The Normans were very interested in Ireland because it was this nice, green, fertile land unconquered or untouched by the Normans. They wanted to gain a piece of the action and a foothold there. And when the opportunity came, they took it.
1: The book follows the life of Aoife McMorror, who is the daughter of Dermot, the king of Leinster. So could you tell me about these people and these incredibly dramatic events which kick off the book? Well, Dermot himself was,
2: was a bit of a rogue, but also a very fierce and competitive contender for the position of High King of Ireland. And also, to do one of his enemies down, and because he was a bit of a pirate, he abducted this chap's wife. And this caused terrific ructions and bad feeling between the families. As time went on, this guy tried to get his own back on Dermot and there was a lot of push and pull and in the end Dermot ended being so badly defeated that he burned his own palace behind him rather than give it to his enemy. And this is true history, it's not me sort of embroidering the fact Dermot actually did this, he burned his home behind him rather than give it to anybody and fled abroad with his family. One of his best bargaining counters, the Normans in coming to help him get his land back, and he was determined to get his land back, was his daughter Aoife, who was just marriageable age for a girl starting at the age of 12 back then. She'd be in her early teens, somewhere probably around 13 or 14. And he offered her as a, almost like in fairy tales, I will give you the hand of my daughter if you do this. And it was, I will give you the hand of my daughter if you come over and fight my enemies and help me get my land back. This is basically what happened.
1: And they go across the channel to see King Henry the English king, who's currently in France, and they try and seek support from him. But Henry is very taken with Aoife's beauty. So do we know if that actually happened? Speculation as to how how much
2: of a relationship Henry II had with Aoife McMurrah. that is artistic license, but based on things that could have happened. And whenever I write things, I always ask myself on a scale of 8 to 10, even if it's fiction, how likely is this person to behave like this, said Mm. this, how likely is this to have happened? If it's an eight or more, I'll go with it. And if it's not, then I'll find another way around. Henry, we know that he had a thing for teenage girls. All of his mistresses were generally teenagers.
1: Is that something that's less shocking in those days when people were always marrying young,
2: weren't they? People did marry young. But it's interesting that he didn't sort of take up with sort of experienced courtesans or older women his wife was a few years older than him, nine years older than him, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and a strong, dominant woman. And I think teenage girls who were pretty and fresh and weren't going to tell him what to do. And he did have a slew of teenage mistresses. So although I don't think Eva did end up as one of Henry's mistresses, I think there was probably quite a spark in his eye when he set eyes on her. That might have made him quite positive towards her father, Henry, though, also politically had a really strong interest in Ireland, and if he could get his foot in the door anyway, that would be really useful. And so, this Irish contingent coming to him and saying, Can you help us? was probably very useful to Henry, never mind having Aoife on the side as a tasty morsel.
1: So, when Aoife and this great Irish contingent visit Henry at his court in France, do you think there would have been a clash of cultures there?
2: They would have been different kinds of people. But Dermot himself kept a bard who was bilingual, who wrote for Anglo-Norman and the French of the court. And you get the impression that although Ireland was out on the edges, Dermot was cultured and canny enough to understand and connect with princes across the water. He probably helped Henry II out during the anarchy in Henry's younger life. So there were trading connections as well, especially between Bristol and Dublin. So there was a lot of give and take. The Irish would have been seen probably as, you know, a little bit outlandish and exotic, if you like, but not totally outside the culture.
1: And we follow Eva from her birth, and she's this quite headstrong, proud young girl who is the apple of her father's eye. And in your book, they have a very sweet, quite close relationship. So is that something that you have just created? Or do we actually know that they were just like that? And if so, was that typical, that kind of father-daughter relationship?
2: I don't think we know. I mean, we know that Dermot greatly valued his daughter just in the few resources we can pick out. You can look at things different ways. People will say about the aristocracy, oh, well, you know, they've handed over their children to wet nurses straight away and didn't have a lot of contact with them. But when you look, say, at, for example, Henry II's wife had Aquitaine, and you examine her with her children, you find that she was really quite close to her children while they were in the nursery, and that she had strong contact with her daughters later on, when they were grown women, and she went and stayed with them and had them come and stay with her where it was possible. And you find the same going on quite strongly with the century I'm in now, which is the thirteenth century, with Henry the Third and his family. There's a very strong family element there when you dig under the surface. So I think there are different ways of looking at things, and sometimes what's on the surface isn't always what's underneath and that's what I quite like doing in historical fiction is to go and look at what's under the surface, and I always find that very rewarding and interesting quite often that it's not spelled out for you, but there are nuances that you can follow, and sometimes you have to go into into records if you can find them, for example, a lot later in Eva's life after she's had her marriage and she's got a young daughter who is now this is Isabel who is now in wardship as a teenager, and Isabel was taken to the Tower of London by Henry II. But you find Aoife suddenly moving to a manor within a day's ride of London. You think, yes, well, she was probably doing that so that she could drop in and keep an eye on her daughter or even see her daughter. It's quite often facts have to be extrapolated. Who was where and when, what they were doing, you know, if you happen to get, get hold of their accounts. And they just give you little clues. She's got a daughter who's moved to the Tower of London. Aoife suddenly moves from the Welsh marches to these London manors. Why has she done that? And it coincides with the time of her daughter being in the Tower of London. So you can see that bond with mother and daughter there.
1: Eva goes on to marry Richard de Clare. So how did that come about and what was the marriage like? Well,
2: Dermot wanted help in Ireland and the best person to coordinate all that was this, this Richard de Clare, who we know was red-haired, grey-eyed, tall whose central base was Chepstow, but had connections all over the place in Wales and was, was, was a warrior. And he was offered... I mean, there was quite a big age gap between them. I mean, he was in his 30s and she's his teenage girl, which is pretty typical for a lot of marriages in the Middle Ages of the, of the aristocracy. But as far as their marriage goes, it seems to have been a very successful one of teamwork and would have been sort of acknowledged par for the course they were betrothed for a couple of years because Dermot said, well, you only get to marry her if you come to Ireland and you succeed, because he was covering his bets. And, of course, Richard was covering his by saying, well, you know, he could have just come to Ireland and fought almost like a mercenary, but he wanted more than that. And so Eva was the lock on that agreement. But what Eva thought about it, we don't know. There are certain things that we know with Henry that suggest that he was fond of her such as not taking the children into wardship and which would have been the first thing he would have done. They did go into wardship later once the heir died but Eva seems to have had control of her children. She seems to have had control of castles and to have been given more freedom if you like later on than other women were allowed. She was never remarried for example. As far as her relationship with Richard goes we know very little about it so that has to be a lot of that has to be speculation.
0: His other hand gripped a torch soaked in pine pitch, and he leaned to the fire pit and kindled a flame. I may have to bow my head to Rory O'Connor, but I will burn this hall to the ground before I let him set foot inside it, he said hoarsely. If I cannot sit in my great chair and pass judgment on men and feast my warriors, no man shall. I give fern to the ashes. He squeezed his eyes tightly shut for an instant. And when he opened them again, his lashes were wet. Go, my precious girl, this is no place for you. But I swear on this hearth I now destroy that I will rebuild anew, watered by the blood of my foes. I shall trample them all, and they shall pay. I swear this by God's holy mother and the crone of the Morrigan. Now,
1: when I read The Irish Princess, What I really noticed was there was just such a contrast in these people's lives. They ride home with the heads of their enemies attached to their horses as trophies. And Aoife looks out and she sees her father with all these heads around his horse. And when you actually read that, it is so horrific. It's nightmarish. And Aoife has nightmares about this. And they threaten to pluck out the eyes of her brother. But then these same people come home, they swoon over newborn babies and they make love and they're all very human in lots of sort of ways. Were people of this period just totally desensitised to this kind of extreme pain and inflicting unbearable pain on others or was it something that people did actually struggle to deal with?
2: People do become inured to a certain extent, especially brought up with it from birth. I think probably more sensitive types would get what we now call PTSD and there must have been anxieties because of a certain sort of level of stress that went on because you know if you said goodbye to your son as a hostage you know he might come back you know as a headless corpse but society was inured to it you know I think even back to my now sadly passed away father-in-law who grew up in London's East End so this is a completely different period obviously he had uncles who were bare-knuckle fist fighters his job as a small boy to earn money for the family they couldn't afford things like shoes at one point was to be given pennies by the neighbours for drowning kittens. That sounds awful, doesn't it? But he was completely inert to it. It was just what you did to survive. And when I knew him as a much older grown man, he didn't regret it. He would talk about his past as it was. This is what it was. And that's how it was. But he was a lovely man and he just lived in the moment. And if the moment wasn't stressful, you'd just get on with your life. You know, he had an allotment, he potted about... He'd been through the horrors of the Second World War and seen some terrible things, but he just got on with it. What it did make him do, and I think it's perhaps what the characters in earlier times would have done, was to live in the now. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. You've just got to get on with it and live your life as best you can.
1: But it is interesting what you say about Dermot and his values. He must have been driven by religion and honour and duty and... It's all of these values which I suppose we don't really hold in quite such high esteem today. Do you ever find it difficult when you're writing to keep these characters relatable when they hold such different values to the audience that you're writing for?
2: Not really. Speaking for me personally, I do one heck of a lot of research. And the more you research, the more you can walk with confidence in your own world. It doesn't mean you have to info dump it in the novel, heaven forbid but what you're doing is researching in detail so that you can walk easily in the world of your characters, then the author's skill is in making that world real to modern readers and an experience, but one that they can stick with. So those are your two things. As a writer, you're a bridge builder. You're building that bridge between past and present, and you want to encourage as many readers as possible to walk over that bridge, but you need to have integrity with it. And
1: that's where a writer's skill, actually, for me, comes in. So, Elizabeth, you have written many, many books, and they're all about characters surrounding William the Conqueror, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Stephen, Matilda, that early medieval period.
2: 11th through 13th centuries is my sort of stamping ground, because that interests me as a period.
1: So what is it about that period that always draws you back?
2: That goes back to my own childhood psyche and childhood and teenage psyche, it really does. Various events hadn't happened, I would probably be writing something totally different now. I've always told myself stories. I can remember telling myself stories at the age of three, so I got that sort of storytelling thing before I could write. And then I grew up in Scotland and we were doing history and we have been doing it chronologically and we got to Scottish medieval And for that particular year, teacher, instead of just having us copy all stuff down from the blackboard, as happened in those days, she would get the dressing up box out and we'd all have to enact the little bits that we'd just been writing about. And that brought medieval history to life for a start. That was the first germ of it. By the next year, it was a different teacher, different era, and it was all back to just blackboard boredom. That must have just been a subconscious thing that medieval history was fun. But then later on, the BBC put on a programme called Desert Crusader, I'd be 15 then, lots of hormones about. BBC would never do something like this these days. It was dubbed from French and it was about a man having adventures in the Holy Land, you know, swashbuckling his sword and all sorts, but he was gorgeous. I began writing my own, if you like, little bit of fan fiction, but then it quickly changed. I began writing it. I wanted it to feel as real as possible, so then I began researching and the more research I did, the more interested I became and the more I wanted to write the novel and the more I wanted to research. And it just went round in a circle. So by the time I was 16, I got a full length novel on my hands and the awareness that, yeah, this is what I want to do for a day job. This is, what, this is what I want to do for a living. And then I carried on researching and became more interested and that's how it went. So I didn't get published till I was in my 30s.
1: So if I was somebody who enjoyed writing historical fiction as a hobby, you know, maybe some fan fiction a bit like you were, and I'd like to be published, what advice would you give to make that transition?
2: It's the amount of time you spend writing. Colloquially, put bum-on-seat hours. You need to get to be good enough at your craft, and some of that you can only do by sitting and writing. You can read how-to books. It also depends on how you are as a person. As I said, I was three years old and was born, if you like, telling stories in a fairly raw format. I had to learn how to do it. But basically, I was, if you like, a bird. Other people can get up there by reading the flight manuals, i.e. the how-to books. They'll still get up in the air and fly, but it's whatever gets you there. But you have to love doing it. You have to want to do it. It's got to be a passion to do it. If you've got that passion, then that will carry you through. You have to enjoy what you're doing. And if you're enjoying what you're doing and you've got a passion for what you're doing, you will learn. I knew I was getting better because I was entering short story competitions and I was getting placed. And then I sent this manuscript up of a novel called The Wild Hunt to a literary agent and she asked to see the rest of it and then signed me up. But that was 17 years after I'd written my first novel, age 15.
1: (laughs) But you're in it for the long haul, basically. So you've got the natural spark for it since a very young age. So when you start a new book, are there any things that you always look out for? You know, you've got this amazing, rich tapestry of historical characters to choose from. What makes you drawn to a particular one? Is it perhaps you need to have a strong female lead or there's been a lot of research or we know a certain degree about them?
2: I tend to read about people. Something might strike me about them then that's it you know I think oh well why did he do that or why did she do that or what happened how did that come about and once you start asking who where when why what from something that you might have read in a book you can build a story around it so it's always about asking questions I think and then letting your subconscious do a lot of the work sometimes I don't know how it happens because I just put it into the subconscious and the subconscious will just bumble away in the background and then suddenly it'll go here you are and I'll go oh thanks so some of it isn't really conscious you've just got to feed the subconscious with notions and ideas and then go away and do something else and let it mull and it'll chug away and pop something out at you a bit later on
1: so have you got any big plans for the next few years in terms of writing some more books perhaps in a different historic period perhaps taking ether to the big screen or writing some scripts
2: probably won't go into a different area of history. I have We have actually gotten a script on the go for one of my William Marshall novels at the moment. And as you know, with film scripts and things, it's a long ongoing project, but I'm a consultant on that. But I'm not actually writing the script for that. That's somebody else. But, you know, I've got a little bit of consultation input on that. The Marshall family have occupied me for quite a while. In one way or another, I'm writing about one of William Marshall's granddaughters at the moment, who is an absolutely amazing lady. We haven't got a title for it yet but she was a really fascinating lady who ran rings around the barony of the time who were against her her husband. She managed to fool the great Simon de Montfort. So that's really interesting and looking at people from different historical angles. I might, you know, perhaps one day veer into non-fiction, but I am aware that perhaps a lot of non-fiction can be popular without being historically accurate, so I'd be very careful about that.
1: And one quite exciting thing about you is that you were part of a reenactment society. Can you tell me a bit about that?
2: So I was until fairly recently. Being in a reenactment society is, is absolutely brilliant in that you get to try stuff out and, you know, cook the dishes as they would have been cooked, handle the items. I've got a medieval cooking pot, for example, the sort that Eva would have used, or anybody really, and you find that if you put it on the edge of the hearth, just in the ashes. It will just gently bubble away without evaporating or without evaporating quickly. It will be cool enough to handle at the top because of the shape of the top, you can pick it up without an oven glove. It will keep moist and warm for ages. So you can go away and do your spinning or do a bit of raking in the garden and come back and it won't burnt to a crisp on the bottom of the pan. The only thing danger is because it's you know pottery, it's quite easily dropped, easily breakable. But you find that it's as good or better than some of our cookware. And you couldn't do that by just looking at an example in a museum or some stuck
1: together pieces in a book. Elizabeth thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with the future. Thank you.
0: Historical fiction